1: Amen. What a story of the faithfulness of God and what happens when we just do what God's called us to do as his people and get to see the way that he works in the lives of others. So grateful and look forward to seeing that story uh, just multiply over years and decades here at Quad City. Christian Church. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. So honored to have you with us today. Want to welcome all of those who are joining us online from whenever and wherever you are, as well as all of those out in Prescott Valley with us today. So grateful you're worshiping with us. So we are in the middle of this series that we're calling Excel. And this is more than a series, it is a kickoff to a two-year engagement that we're asking everybody who calls Quad City, their church home, to excel. Because that's what God's called us to, to do, to excel, to take a step, to grow beyond, to outdo one another. Like that's what he's invited us into, to outdo where we have been and keep striving to grow in every area of our discipleship, including, as we've learned over the last several weeks, including in the grace of, of giving. And so we are hanging out in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. If you have your Excel book, we're on week 4. I think it's page 34. So if you've got those, you can join us there on page, uh, actually it's page 36. So if you got your book, grab that and join us there today. Um, As we, as you're turning there, let me give you one quick announcement. We are going to be doing our commitment night. So, as a part of this journey, right, we're all going to decide, hey, God, what is it that you're asking me to do? What part are you calling me to play? And we're going to uh, ask everybody, again, who's a part of Quad City to, to make a commitment, say, this is what the Lord's asking of me. And so, we're going to be doing an advanced commitment night this coming Thursday, September 14th. And we're going to be doing it out in Prescott Valley at the Finley Toyota Center, and we would love for all of you to be there, all of you who are ready to say, I'm in, and this is what God's asking of me, and I'm ready to be a part of what God's doing through this Excel season. So it's a big night. This is an opportunity for us as a church, which meets across five different services on uh, two different campuses And not including those who are online. Like this is a chance for all of us to gather and to worship and to celebrate what God is doing among us all at one place. And we haven't been able to do that all in one place for a really, really, really long time. And we would love, love to be able to do that together this coming Thursday. So invite you to register. You can do that on the app. You can do it on our website. Or we can help you at Connection Central on either campus Uh, But we'd love for you to be a part of that with us. So please, please, please uh, come and let's celebrate together. We are kicking off today. Again, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I want to begin our time together this morning simply by asking, I want you to think about a time when you felt manipulated or pressured to have to give to something or to someone okay? Think about a time when you felt manipulated to have to give. I, I Maybe it was when somebody, you invited some people over for Christmas, and the second cousin brings the girlfriend, and everybody else has got a gift there except for them, and so you feel bad. So you're going into the back and stuffing money into an envelope to give to somebody that you've never met before because you don't want to feel bad that everybody has something to open except for this three-day-old girlfriend. So you, d- and you're like, Ugh! but you feel pressure because you got to make sure that everybody has something. Or maybe it's somebody at work and they're collecting money for a good cause. And it's something they're passionate about. And they're going to all the coworkers and collecting the thing for the thing. And you see all of your other coworkers dutifully giving to the thing. And you're like, I don't want to do this, but here I am. Cause now it's my turn and everybody's looking at me. Or maybe it's like right now at school and your kid comes home and it's got the fundraiser form, right? That's happening in my house right now. Like It's like, what are we we doing? We're two weeks in. Like, here we go. Or or maybe you're at a stoplight and you see the firefighter coming up with the boot. And you're like, I did it yesterday. Like yesterday, I came here and I did the thing, but it doesn't matter. When the boot comes, you're like, got to pull something out because it's the boot and you got to put something in and for the firefighters, or, or maybe this is the most per, per, pervasive right now. You, you're going through a drive-up coffee window, or a walk-up counter restaurant, or you buy a coke in a in a sports arena, and the cashier rings you up, and they swivel the little touchpad around, and right there on the screen it says, "How much would you like to tip?" 15%, 20 or 25%. doesn't ask you if you would like, but how much you would like. This happened to me just a few weeks ago. I had some friends come into town and we took them out to dinner and we go to a restaurant here in town and you stand in line, you're waiting at the door and you go in and there's a counter there and you have to wait in line at the counter and the person at the counter, all they're doing is just taking your order. That's it. So you're standing there and there was several of us. There was like eight or nine of us and we we're taking our order and it, the bill came out to like over $200, and and sure enough, after the thing, it spins the little thing around, and it says, how much would you like to tip? And it said, 15, 20, or 25, and I'm, I'm, I am had that panic moment, like, what do you do? Like, here we are, and everybody's watching the cashiers there, and my friends there, and I don't want to look like the guy who doesn't tip, so I hit the 20% button, and I, I know, right? I, I hit the 20% and I'm like, why did I do that? Like, what, Like why, what, what, why am I being asked to tip up front? Like, think about it. Like, 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 at no point, like, the service has completely ended at this point. Like, this person is the only person I'm going to have any connection with in this entire endeavor. Like, what's going to happen next is somebody's going to call my name at some point, and I'm going to go and pick up my own food, and I'm going to have to go find my own fork, and I'm going to have to fill my own glass, and I'm going to have to fight for a seat in a sit-down restaurant because nobody's taking me to a seat. Like, that's how this thing goes. And, and I'm like, but yet they're asking me to tip. I tipped up front. Like, Tipping is supposed to be for good service that goes above and beyond to help a waiter or waitress to supplement. But none of those are happening in this endeavor. It's not, I don't even know if my food's any good yet. I don't even know if they got my order right yet. Like I could be sitting there for an hour before my food. Or do I get my tip back if they put coleslaw on my food? Like, why am I doing this? Why do you do this? And the answer is, because in that moment, We feel pressured. We feel manipulated. We feel this begrudging expectation that we have to do this thing. And so I did. And my guess is that many of you have had that very same feeling about giving money to the work of the Lord through a local church. Like you have felt that begrudging expectation. Where you come to church and you end up and you give, not because you want to, because you feel like you have to. Because a lot of churches, you'll see the plate gets passed by and everybody's dutifully doing their thing. And you're like, I do. What do I, I got? Two nickels of chapstick and lint. Like, that's all I got. I don't know. And you put the thing, like, what am I doing? Like, you, you feel this. If really bad. If you've ever been to one of those churches where they put the bag, the the offering bag, on a stick, have you ever seen these? <laughs> the ushers are walking down the aisle, and they'll just put the bag in front of you, and they'll just hold it until you put something in. Like, like that. Like that's like high level pressure. You don't really want to do it, but you feel like you have to. It's and it comes off as a sense of Duty, not a sense of of delight. And in our text today, the Apostle Paul wants to try to change the way we think about our giving. And he's going to try to convince us, and I want to try to convince you that giving to the Lord through the local church, it actually really isn't even a gift. It's an investment. It's not a gift, it's an investment. And, And you know the difference between the two, right? When you give a gift, A gift is giving with no expectations. If you give a gift with expectations, it's not a gift, okay? If you're giving gifts with strings attached, it's not a gift. But what Paul's saying to this church, what he's saying to us is that when you give to the Lord, it's an investment. You should expect a return on that investment. When you invest into something, you have the anticipation of getting something back of equal or even greater value. That's what makes it a good investment, right? And Paul is saying that's what it should be like when you're giving to the Lord. So let's dive in. We're in the middle of this huge conversation in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, where Paul's teaching amazing theological realities around generosity. And we're about halfway through. I encourage you to go back and Listen to the last three if you're just joining us for the first time. Paul says, remember this. In other words, this isn't the first time I've told you this. You all already know this. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. This is the context of the whole conversation he's talking about how the people of God ought to be generous. So he starts off by using a farming analogy that everybody in this culture that he's writing to would have understand that those who sow seed sparingly would understandably reap a small harvest and those who sow generously would reap a generous harvest that's how that's how farming works okay it's just how it works it's just the reality now Most of you, I'm guessing, are not farmers. Um, So I want to just try to play this out for us just to help us all put this in our mind. So I have with me here a big old bucket of seed. Like it's, it's just full all the way down, just giant bucket of seed. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that this is all the seed that you have. You are a farmer and this is it. Like this is all your seed. Question is, what, if this is all you have, what are you going to do with your seed? What's the best option for you moving forward to make the most of this seed? That's the question I want you to think about. What are you going to do? Are you going to hold on to that seed? Are you going to keep it stored in a nice, safe place because it's all I got? Is that what you're going to do with your seed? Would you hoard it? Knowing that if you do, it will be the only seed you ever have. Or worse yet, are you going to take your seed and use it? I'm going to grind it up. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to cook with it. I'm going to make something with the seed. What, what are you going to do with it? You're going to use it here now? I mean, who wants to wait for a harvest later? I want to fill my stomach with the seed Now which, I mean, like nobody would actually do that, right? I mean, nobody would be foolish enough. Who who in their right mind would use up what they have to fill a temporary longing and forego something better later? I mean, nobody would do that, right? If a farmer does that, if he chooses to hoard it or hang on to it or even use it up and eat it right now, if a farmer does that, then there will be no harvest and there would never be any more seed available to him. So what do you do with the seed? And the answer is you sow it. You have to sow the seed. You have to plant the seed because that's the only way that that seed is going to be of great use to you. Here's what a farmer understands that I think many of us need to begin to understand. Seed that is sown is not seed that is lost. We get this way confused. Seed that is sown is not seed that is lost. It is an investment. When you take a seed and you plant it, it is not as if that seed, once it's planted and then watered and then grows, it's not as if you get one seed back. You get hundreds of seeds back, maybe thousands of seeds back. Every seed planted will produce hundreds or thousands of seeds in return. And so if a farmer sows the seed, the more seed he sows, the greater the greater the harvest he will reap. He will receive back more seed for sowing. Next time, his sowing is not him giving something away. It is him investing in a return. So applying this analogy to giving means that plentiful giving will result in a plentiful harvest. Now, the question is, what kind of harvest? What kind of harvest is promised by our generosity? We're going to work our way through the text, and Paul doesn't tell us yet. He will in a minute. But he starts just by stating this as a fact. The amount of harvest received is always connected to the amount of seed that is sown. Let's keep going. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Don't miss this. As Paul is inviting this church in Corinth to invest in his generosity initiative, he doesn't give them an amount that they should give. He doesn't even give them a percentage of what they should give. There's no mathematical equation that he offers to figure out what generosity looks like for them. He does not say, well, you take your gross income and you multiply by 0.1 and that will give you the total of how, he doesn't do that. He doesn't tell them, take the number from your W2 and add it to line 42 and then take that and move the decimal point over one and that will be your, he doesn't do that. He doesn't give them anything. What does he give them? He says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. And as we've said throughout this text, generosity is a heart issue. And Paul has the expectation that those who are going to give are going to have some heart work to do to give. Like this does, there's no formula for this. There There is no arithmetic that can quantify what generosity looks like for you. You have to do the heart work to come to a conclusion of what generosity looks like for you. And then he adds that we are to give. You should give. You should give. And here's the qualifier of how you should give. You should give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. That's how you should give. You should give, but you should not give reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. Here's what we know. A gift given under compulsion does not honor the one who receives it. Isn't that true? If somebody walked up to you today and says, hey, I've got this thing that I have to give you. I don't really want to give it to you. I don't think you, I don't think you earned it. I don't want to, I don't want you to have it, but I, I'm having to do this. So take it you honored by that? Feeling good about that? I mean, that's what we do with our taxes. We're not setting out to honor the IRS. Like that's not, it's that kind of attitude is not a reflection of gratitude or admiration of joy. It's a duty. It's a duty. There's no honor in that. Ladies, if your husband, if you have to berate him to get you flowers for your anniversary Do you feel honored when he walks in and says, here's your dumb flowers that you made me buy you? You honored by that? No, you're not. No, and Paul says the same is true with God. He says, look, if if your only giving comes with a twisted arm, then you shouldn't give because it doesn't honor God. What honors God is the same thing that honors you when it comes to giving. It's the exact same. What honors you is when somebody walks up and says, hey, I've got this thing that I have for you and I can't wait for you to see it. I know you're gonna love it. And you're just standing there jumping up and down waiting for them to open it. Like that kind of giving, when somebody does that to you, when they give you something, they're so excited to see your face open that gift, that honors you. What honors you is when somebody gives and it's exuberant because it is of value to them. Like they love this thing, but they love you. And because they love you, they want you to have this thing that they love. Like you aren't honored when somebody gives you the leftovers. Hey, I got nine of these in the garage. You want one? You're not honored when somebody gives you the cheap crap that they don't want anymore. Like that doesn't honor you. You feel honored when somebody says, This thing means so much to me. And I want you to have it because you mean so much to me. When they give you something that they've worked hard for and they love, they're excited about, and they want you to have it. That's honoring. And Paul's saying the same is true for God. He doesn't want your begrudging, discontented, I will if I have to, kind of offering. He wants your, I am so excited to get to be a part of this kingdom. Please take my offering from me. That's what he's looking for. But as we've already alluded to, there is one big difference between the gift that you give to people and the offering you bring to the Lord. And what's the big difference? Your offering to the Lord comes with a promised return on investment. Now, there are some very unscrupulous pastors who have leveraged this text to tell people, hey, if you'll send me your $1,000 of seed money, the Lord will send you $10,000 in the next 30 days. To which I say, if he really believes that, then why doesn't the pastor just send in his $1,000 seed money? Like, if he really thinks God's going to grant the $10,000, then he doesn't need to ask anybody for offering. He just needs to give. And the Lord will give him $10,000 in return if he really believes that. But he doesn't believe that. And the reason he doesn't believe that is because that's not what Scripture teaches. Nowhere in Scripture does it teach that. There is, there is no Scripture that talks about that in any sense. This, what we're looking at in this text, is not a get-rich scripture. Quick scheme where God owes you some kind of financial blessing for whatever money you give to Him. That isn't the promise in Scripture and it's not here. That doesn't mean that there, is, that there isn't a promised return. Question is: what is the promised return? Paul tells us God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need. You will abound in all good work. It's the same word, actually, in all of them. God is able to bless you, yes and amen, so that in all things, at all times, you'll have all that you need. That's the promise. You'll have all that you need. It's not a promise you'll have all that you want. It's not what he says. There isn't a promise that you're going to have all of you all that you want, and you can abound in every indulgence you desire. That's not the promise. The promise is you will have all that you need, and you will be able to abound in every good work. The promise is that you will be Blessed in such a way that you can abound in every good work. The promise of the blessing is God is going to provide for you so that he can provide through you. That's the promise. To provide through you for the sake of others. That's what good works are all about. It's about you being a blessing to other people. He reiterates it in verse nine. Now he who supplies seed for, to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your bank account. That's not what it says. He, he's, gonna, he's gonna enlarge the harvest of your, what does it say? Your righteousness. Righteousness. Paul isn't promising these people that their generosity is going to bring about material gain. He promises that their wholehearted generosity will bring about a blessing of something that money cannot buy. That is a harvest of righteousness. Here's what we all know. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we believe that there will be a day when Jesus comes back, the sky splits and Jesus returns. And we know that in that day, on that moment, everyone on the planet will trade every red nickel they had to be declared righteous before the Lord. Like everyone everywhere would give up everything to be determined as righteous before God. We all would. And Paul says, God can and will do that now. And I don't believe for a second that he's in any way talking about somehow buying your righteousness. We can't write a check big enough for that. But what I think he's alluding to is the fact that every act of generosity on our part dethrones another idol from our life and makes us look a little bit more like Jesus who we learned last week, was rich, but he became poor so that through his poverty we could become rich. Generosity makes us look more like Jesus, which is why our harvest of righteousness gets bigger and bigger every time we act in in generosity. And again, the blessing isn't just about God doing something in us or even for us. It's about God doing something through us. You will be enriched in every way so that, this is a a word of purpose, you will be enriched. Here's why. So that you can be generous. You will be enriched so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. You will be enriched. Why? So that you can have more. Is that what it says? No. You you will be enriched so that you can be even more generous. So that you can be generous on every occasion. The promise, he promises that when we are generous, when we invest into the kingdom, he will enrich us, but not necessarily for us, but will enrich us so that we can be even more generous. He wants to bless others through us. Here's the truth. Most of us as Americans, we just don't want to hear this, but I think it's true that many of us are sitting on resources that were never meant for us. We're sitting on resources that weren't meant for us. They were given to us for the sake of others. But instead of being a conduit of the blessings of God, we became the container for the blessing of God. It came to us to go through us, but instead, We kept what was meant for others. We are holding on to what was meant to be given away. And we're holding on because deep down, we don't actually believe what this scripture teaches. We're afraid to give it away because we're afraid we won't have enough. We're afraid that God won't actually do what he says he will do. That we'll have all that we need so that we can be generous in all occasions. We don't actually believe him and so we take the seed and we just hang on to it like a farmer who's afraid to sow it because this is all I got. Because we don't actually believe that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. Worse yet, we take the seed and we just eat it. We consume it for ourselves because we don't want to have to wait to see what the harvest might bring. We have needs that we want to to fulfill now. God is calling us into a life of generosity where we don't hoard it, we don't eat it, we sow it. We sit back and we enjoy the fruit of what God brings about because of it. And again, it's an invitation. He wants us to do it not because we have to, because, we, because we're because we excited to. It should be an act of generosity. And here's what we know. You cannot mandate generosity. You can't. Generosity is a reflection of a grateful heart. You can mandate somebody to give you money. You can force them to serve you in some way, but you cannot require generosity. The moment someone is compelled to give you something or to do something for you, in that moment, it is by definition no longer an act of generosity. Generosity always requires someone to go beyond what is expected. I want to end our time by sharing with you what I think is outside of Jesus' generosity toward us. It's the greatest picture of the outpouring of generosity that I have found anywhere in Scripture. It's found in Exodus chapter 35. The Israelites, just to set the context, have just been freed from Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And God sent the 10 plagues and called Moses to bring his people out. And you may remember that story. And they go and they're after the 10th plague, all of the Egyptians are like bringing all of their gold and silver to the Israelites and said, just take it here. Take all of it. Just go, just get out. We don't want you or your God in our country anymore. Just leave. And then they They leave, and then the Egyptians change their mind, and they start pursuing them, and the miracle, and the Red Sea, and that whole thing happens. Fast forward a couple years. They're wandering in the desert, and God comes to Moses and says, hey, um, I would like for you to build me a tabernacle, which is a fancy word for big old tent. And he says, when you build this tabernacle, if you build it in the way that I'm inviting you to, then the spirit of the living God, God himself, the Shekinah glory of the Lord will come down and fill this tent in your presence. The very presence of God will go with you wherever you go and will lead you and protect you and guide you throughout your journey to the promised land. So Moses shares this news with the Israelites and invites them to give to help build this tabernacle. And I want you to see what happens. It so says, Moses said to the whole Israelite community, This is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, not what you don't have, from what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing, it is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze. And then he lists some other stuff as well. But I want you to key on those three words. Everyone who is willing. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. God is wanting to do this thing among us. And if you're willing, then bring your offerings. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence. And everyone who was willing and whose heart had moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work of the tent of meeting, for all its service, and for all the sacred garments. So Moses says, hey, if you're willing God's wanted to do this thing among us. And if you want to be a part, then go bring an offering. And all the people withdrew from his presence. They left that moment and went home and they started bringing it. All who were willing, everyone who was willing and whose heart had been moved. Again, it's a heart issue. It's always been a heart issue. And they go and they start bringing all of their offerings to Moses. All Who were willing? Men and women alike came and brought gold jewelry of all kinds, brooches and earrings and rings and ornaments. They all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. Every skilled woman spun with her hands and brought what she had spun blue, purple, and scarlet yarn or fine linen. All of the women who were willing and had the skill spun. The goat hair, all the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings for all the work the Lord, all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. Like these people gave. And what's the common denominator? They were willing. They kept willing, willing, willing over and over. They wanted to give. Why did they want to give? Why why were they so willing to sacrifice all of this wealth that they had had? Why? Because they had a God who had just saved them. They had a God who brought them out of slavery and this same God knew them and spoke to them. He knew their name and he promised them I will be with you. You do this, I will make my home with you. My presence will dwell with you. I will go with you and lead you and guide you and direct you as you go on this journey. Of course they were willing. Of course they were excited. In fact, they were so excited. Look at look at how this text ends. The workers who are working on the tabernacle get to the place where they're like, We've got too much stuff. you got to tell these people to stop. Then Moses gave an order and they sent this word out all throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering to the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because what they had, because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. They had to be restrained. Somebody had to put a rope around these people and say, stop with the generosity already. We got too much. But they were so overwhelmed that they had a God who loved them and saved them. And I can't, I just can't help but think how much more should this story be a reflection of us? I can't help but wonder how much more should that be our heart? That the same God, he saved us. And he didn't just save us from a nation. He saved us from hell. And he promised us not just to be with us, but to be in us. And he has given us his spirit not to live beside us, but to live inside us. And he promised to give us all that we need and then some, so that we don't just get to be blessed, we get to be a blessing. How much more for a God who gave it all through his son, Jesus, how much more should our generosity overflow back to him? Not begrudgingly, not manipulated, not under compulsion, but joyfully, cheerfully, and willingly because all of our, all of what our God has done for us, let me pray. Father, I pray that you would help break the chains in us where any, there's any reservation in us to hang on to or hoard, or have a scarcity mindset. That we be, we would be willing and cheerful and exuberant givers because we want to reflect the generosity of our seed.